Today on the Angel of Words podcast, don't be fooled by the microscopes that she's got. She's still Linda, Linda from the block. Clinical research expert Linda Monteroso will be here to discuss some scientific things that I really need to know about on deck on the Angel of Words podcast. Hello and welcome to the Angel of Words podcast and on the line with me right now I have amazing Yankee fan and scientist of the study of clinical research Miss Linda Monterroso. Bienvenidos. Hello Linda. How are you? Hi Angel. Well thank you. Thanks for joining us here today on the Angel of Words podcast. It's an honor, actually. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Now, Linda, I want to hop right into it, okay? Because, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world right now, as you know, with the coronavirus. And I really need information and facts because I don't deal with political rhetoric. You know how I feel about that. Um, You know, and I just want to give the listeners and, and viewers, the people tuning in, you know, a little sense of like really what, the scientific world is fighting right now. So I would like to ask you, since you do work in clinical research and they're talking about vaccines and FDA approval, a bunch of uh, scientific jargon that a lot of us may not understand, could you really explain to the American public, you know, what it really takes to, to fight a virus of this magnitude? Well, I think one of the important things to note is everyone thinks a vaccine is going to solve everything and it's going to happen overnight. When you work in clinical trials, there's so many different aspects of actually carrying out the research. It starts in the lab. So someone, you know, scientists have to be in the lab. They have to think of different vectors. They have to think of the biology behind it, right? So they have to make sure that you have chemists, the biologists on board. In a very basic level, that's where everything starts first. This concept, this notion of this specific drug is going to be beneficial or this specific vaccine, whatever it may be, it starts off in the lab and it starts off with the scientists working on their end, uh, working with animals. So first they have to work on the mice and then actually after the mice, they have to work with, um, you know, primates who are much more, um, their biology is much more in tune with us as humans. And so uh, it's a different level of, you know, um, the intricacies when it comes to lab work. When that actually gets approved, once that moves on to a different level, you actually have to then negotiate contracts and you have to recruit what they call the institutions or the different research sites that are actually going to carry out these trials. Now that they have this drug that they've tested on animals, they have to test it out on humans. And when they do that, it has to be a very controlled setting. When you do clinical trials, you have to make sure that not only are you following the institutional guidelines, you're following the FDA guidelines, but above all else, you have to make sure that a patient's safety is the utmost importance. And that's where regulatory comes in. That's where contracts come in. You have to set up so many different parameters. And that's the area that I work in. I work in clinical operations management. And basically doing that means making sure that everyone who is a part of that study team carrying out this clinical research is doing their part and is doing their part correctly, not only on a good clinical practice level, 
in following human subject protection rights, but also doing it on a federal level and following all their specific guidelines. And so there's so many elements with regards to that. And then after you recruit a, a massive amount, and you want to recruit a good amount of patients on these clinical trials because you want your, um, and this is something that probably comes out in the news all the time, are the statistics behind the success of a vaccine or the, the number of people that were actually tested. If you're testing out 10 people and you see an overwhelming response, that's a positive indicator. But if you're testing, say, 10 people and only two people respond, well, now you, get, you, you have to dig in to see why that was. And, you know, not everyone's the same. Not everyone's um, you know, body is the same. Not everyone reacts the same way to a specific drug or a vaccine or whatever it may be that you're testing out when it comes to the clinical trial. So you want your end, you want your population size to be as big as possible. You want to recruit as many people as possible to be able to successfully say when you're actually doing your statistics, your biostats behind it, this is a good indicator. This is going to be uh, efficient, not for a small population, but for the mass. So for a big population of a set community or, you know, just, you know, whoever is actually going to partake with vaccines. So I think what they're doing now and they're trying to speed everything up, you have your pros and your cons because you want to be able to uh, successfully have a vaccine that's going to be out in the market and it's going to be helpful for everyone. But you have to make sure that throughout this whole process, everything is done in a very meticulous manner. And that regulatory component, which is what I work in specifically, is making sure that, you know, everything is documented from serious adverse events. Because that's exactly, if you ever pick up a, you know, a medicine over the counter and you kind of read that fine print or reactions of how someone's going to react to a specific drug, that's all, those are all close parameters. Those are very, um, those are very, um, track in a very meticulous manner. We have specific adverse events that have been seen in the mice population. We have specific adverse events we've seen in the primates. And now when we're testing it on human subjects, we really don't know what's going to, you know, what's going to happen. And so you also have different phases of a clinical trial. You have that phase one, you have that phase two and that phase three trial, because you have to test it out first in specific uh, population before it actually goes and, and gets FDA approved. So I think it's a great thing that people are, are getting on board and are trying to carry out these um, clinical trials for a vaccine. But I think it's a great area because it's a, a world that was unknown prior to COVID, really. Um, I don't think that anyone really thought that it was going to, you know, amass to what it's now. And I think um, it's a good direction to go in, but it's something that as researchers, you have to be very you have to pay close attention to what's happening with reactions, um, body reactions, and the way that you know people are actually either benefiting from it or is it going to cause more harm than good? Yeah, it's a very delicate situation, and like you say, you you know it, it's in phases, and like you you never know. I mean, I would imagine you don't know how long those phases are going to last. Well, we do when you actually do clinical trials. You're setting specific objectives, okay. right? Um, so when you actually create, say, for example, you create a phase one clinical trial, you want to make sure that you're testing. The first step is testing it in humans, right? So a phase one clinical trial is going to taste the, uh, test the safety, the side effects, what best dose. And, um, and that way, you're timing that new treatment. 
So from there, we set uh, specific parameters and you're setting a specific time point. And again, you're basing everything off of what you've seen in the lab thus far. Um, and then from that point on, you would move on to uh, phase two and so on. And so by the time you get to phase three, you're actually conducting this clinical research to confirm and expand on that safety and the effectiveness of the, the actual phase one and phase two of the trial. So you're comparing that you know, between phase one and phase two, you're comparing the drug to standard therapies. Now, the thing with COVID is we don't know really what that standard therapy really looks like because this is something that was unknown, something that's been that's being treated really just in a case-by-case scenario. We're kind of figuring it out as we go. There was no research behind this. So we won't know what that standard therapy really means. Um, so that's what phase one and phase two typically do. They compare the drug to standard therapies for that specific disease or the condition that we're being that's being studied. And with phase three, you're confirming and you're expanding that safety um, and the effectiveness of the drug. So as you can see, there's so many different phases with regards to a clinical trial that it could take years before a vaccine is approved by the FDA and is actually out in the market for everyone to purchase or, you know, for um, physicians to use. And and I think that right now everything's been put in lightning bolt, right? We're trying to kind of speed through all these different processes before we actually carry out um, and actually produce this vaccine. Do you feel like, uh, I mean, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, I you no, know, no there, there's been a drug thrown out there, hydrochloroquine, and do you feel like, you know, that information should have been played closer to the chest instead of, you know, like advertising that as like the miracle drug? Like you feel like the administration made a big mistake doing that? Well, I, uh, I'm not going to talk politics. Yeah. Because, but I am not very fond. No, of, I'm talking I like scientifically. Like, is that something that people no, usually do? Like you, you don't go out on a limb on a drug if you don't know. Well, that, no, yeah. by all. No, by I mean, that's. The, that's the first thing that you do when you're doing clinical trials is you have to list. And one, one important thing also to kind of talk about is not only the, the way that that drug is going to develop within you or, or um, how you're going to react to that drug in itself, but you also have to think of like other medications that you're currently taking. So if you take a healthy person and you test, you know, that's the ideal population really when you're trying to test out a drug, right? A healthy person who has no other um, you know, other uh, factors that come into play, you know, you're not taking, you know, a much older population, you're not taking someone that has other, um, you know, comorbid, you know, uh, ailments or whatever it may be. But when you're testing this drug, you don't know how it's going to actually have an effect on another drug you're currently taking. So if you've ever had a physician prescribe a drug to you, they're going to ask you beforehand, what other medications are you taking? And when you go and see your doctor's office, they're going to ask you to list all the other medications you're taking because they want to make sure that whatever drug they do give you, it's not going to have a negative side effect on uh, because of it interacting with the current drug that you're taking. And so with regards to, um, you know, this, this like, I guess, uh, drugs, the miracle drug that you're referring to, you know, it has side effects in itself. You know, you're talking about headaches and dizziness and nausea and vomiting, a lot of other things that actually have come about because of COVID. And so I don't think that it, you know, at the very least from a scientific perspective, you should really jump on to say, this is a miracle drug. This is going to be the cure-all. We don't know whether or not it's going to be effective with everyone. We don't know whether or not it's going to um, be the solution. But 
I think that that's the problem that we're running into right now with regards to this is no one knows really how it's going to play out. No one knows whether or not this specific drug is going to be the uh, solution to everything. And so um, you really have to kind of do your research. And yeah. You have to kind of see whether or not you uh, being, you know, I've heard so many stories of healthy people. And I'm, that's something that you hear in the news, healthy people who have uh, been now are on respirators with COVID, uh, due to COVID. You know, what do you think is going to end up happening with regards to someone who already has all these other ailments and then they're taking this new medication thinking this is going to solve the situation? You don't know how that person's going to react. And that's where really clinical research is, is really key because you want to test out these things in a, in a confined, in a closed environment where you're able to see whether or not this is going to be effective versus, you know, kill someone. And that's been a big issue, you know, not knowing that much about COVID. Like, wh what have you learned so far? What makes COVID so dangerous? I hear that, you know, it's attacking a, a certain enzyme in your in your cells. Could you could you elaborate a little bit more? Because, you know, I, I would like to know a little bit more of the, about the science behind why COVID is so deadly. Um, I think that it's just it, because it, it's one, it's unknown. So that's one thing that you're you're discussing is the fact that, you know, and I don't necessarily work with COVID, okay. um, with any COVID patients, and I don't have any clinical research experience with COVID myself. But just, you know, when you're reading, I think um, most of the information in the news with regards to how people are interacting, it's attacking, really, it's, it's really attacking uh, on different levels. And it's really um, something where, um, we don't know whether or not it's airborne, right? So there's speculation as to whether or not this is airborne. Is it uh, something where it's just a fact of um, contamination? So if we, we would do a decontamination of everything with with, uh, with regards to what we touch and who we interact and things like that. Um, but I think the, the more important aspect of it is the unknown, as you mentioned, and I unfortunately can't really jump into the science behind it myself because I, I'm not an expert by any means with regards to COVID um, or, or how that kind of attacks the body in itself. But I will say that um, the mechanisms of how it's kind of evolving within and how quickly it evolves within the body is what really is frightening really to the scientific community because it doesn't give you much time to assess how to attack it. It doesn't give you much time to um, know what kind of medications are going to be efficient in the long run, much more so than I think um, uh, the medical community is really just trying to keep people stabilized as, you know, as much as possible because of the fact that they don't really know um, whether or not that's going to be beneficial for patients. Okay, I have one more question before we move on to, the, you know, the next topics at hand. Plasma treatment. Why is that so important? I've been hearing, the, you know, the, those words being thrown around. Well, uh, I think one of the things that we've seen with plasma treatment or that we read is um, how important it is for us to be able to, one, everyone that has been, you know, recovered from COVID-19 and they can donate blood, um, they can assess this blood. They can assess it in, in a controlled setting and, and research and assess the therapies uh, and, and assess therapy within a trial, right? So that's where um, plasma comes in. So when a person that has COVID, um, you know, their immune system is attacked, um, it creates antibodies that can attack that virus. And so if these antibodies are actually um, are produced, then we can 
by having that person who has recovered from COVID, by having them donate their blood, we can actually look at these antibodies and see how that uh, helped in, attack the, in attacking the virus and create them so that we might be able to um, have that in a patient who is, is unable to create those antibodies. And so I think, um, you know, one thing to know about I'm a big proponent of blood donation. I do it all the time. I haven't been able to do it. But uh, these antibodies within our, you know, within ourselves um, are found in plasma and they're the liquid portion of the blood. And it's not just necessarily COVID, but they've used it just for other therapies. And I think that that was the, the smartest approach to take. I think that we can see whether or not um, COVID-19 patients are able to recover um, in a better way through their blood, through their antibodies, through the plasma. And so um, I think it's a, it, to me, I'm much more excited in seeing uh, what develops in terms of research with plasma uh, in that manner than, say, for example, creating a vaccine because there's so many different elements of vaccine and we don't know really how everyone's going to react to these vaccines. But, you know, those trials that are investigating whether or not, you know, plasma transfusions can help improve uh, COVID-19 patients speed of recovery is and and you know increase their chances of survival i think that that's really where the research should be focused on and i appreciate the level of passion that you have for your work and um you know it makes me so proud that you come from new york city you know you're from the bx you know could you just explain that wild ride from you know for, for what, what neighborhood did you grow up in over there no, the South Bronx, and the I'm South sorry Bronx. for all the Jennifer Lopez fans. Yes. That is not really the hood. <laughs> I can't, I can't. You know, does it all, need to be, man? You know, you're from one of the five boroughs. That's that's the point <laughs> I'm trying to make. It. It makes me proud. You know, I just, you know, after I, all, I mean, okay, I was uh, born and raised uh, on 175th and Jerome, that corner. Uh, which recently came out in the Law and Order episode, and I can't begin to tell you how exciting that was for me <laughs> to see my hood. I know, I know that it's not probably the best indicator of we came on up, but um, I, th- I thought it was just hilarious. Anyways, uh, born and raised in the Bronx, my parents still live in the same apartment that I was born, um, and I'm—I mean, I grew up in in a very tough environment. You know, everyone around me. Um, I had a great support system. So, but, you know, you saw so many different things. I will always remember there was like a shooting right across from where I live. Um, and the bullet actually hit the window of my bedroom. And I didn't realize it uh, until maybe a couple days later. And it was one of those situations where unfortunately it was like, oh, okay. And, you know, it happens that that's what, what happened in the hood. But at the same time, I had a great support system. I had so many friends in that in that neighborhood that I still speak to this day. And even though, you know, a couple of them have gone off to different states and um, have raised their families, they, I still have such a connection to my roots. Uh, I really don't know that many people now that are in that neighborhood because everyone's moved on. Um, but you know, I'm incredibly proud of being from the hood. I took the four train to go to high school. I took the four train when I went to college. Um, I, I stayed there until in my late twenties when I finally moved out of my parents, and then uh, just started focusing a little bit more on my career development. So there was no bullying situations. You know, you you were nerd shamed growing up or anything of that nature. Of course. I mean, one 
growing up, I was no, no more than like 90 something pounds. I mean, I think that was probably the biggest I got until you, and you know, you hate your freshman 15 and then I finally hit the hundreds. But I was always skinny. I was always the nerd and I was always the underdog when it came to everything. And um, I think that because of that, my parents kind of tried to not include me much more in, in sports with regards to like basketball or anything like that team sports but I started playing tennis and that's how you and I met yes right um but because I was just a loner in that sense um in school I always wanted to just kind of be you know one step ahead and you know my parents really instilled in me that you know drive to um get out of the hood with your education, right? I mean, for my parents, it was incredibly important for me to focus on my studies. Um, they were working two, three jobs. It didn't matter to them. So when I hit, uh, you know, working age, they didn't want me to work. They wanted me to focus on school and they wanted me to, you know, that, that, that was my outlet. So yeah, of course I was bullied. I don't remember how many times being told that uh, a lifesaver could be my hula hoop or something like that when I was like young, but it, it was motivating for me to just kind of focus my attention elsewhere, I think. I still had a lot of friends growing up. I wasn't really, you know, alone in a corner, but, you know, it made it for difficult situations during elementary school, junior high. By the time I got to high school, I went to an all-girl Catholic high school, Mount St. Ursula in the Bronx. And so everyone was already dealing with their own demons and their own issues there because we were, all of us were pooped up, all women were pooped up in, you know, in a building. So... It was a little different. By the time I got to college, I was much more able to express me, myself fully and um, just found like great little groups of people to hang out with. And I mean, yeah. NYU, you're in the middle of the city, right? Yeah, you're so right there. Not like, oh, yeah. No, right. And you're right in the middle of the city. And, you know, I really have, you know, issues with the fact that, you know, you got bullied and, um, you know, it, it hurts to hear that. But, you know, you, you, you've had that drive and, you know, and you speak on education being so such an important factor, that drive to get educated, such an important factor. And I have these issues and, and these, uh, you know, these disagreements with a lot of friends that just say, oh, entrepreneurship is the, is the way out. This, that. Like, I understand that. But, you know, everybody lives on different bandwidths, you know, and, you know, you've been able to, you know, attain a successful career and what you do in STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And Linda. You know, I want to know your thoughts. Like, look, sixteen percent, right, of the of the Lat this of the workforce in America is Latinos is sixteen percent, right? Um, and the the problem where I see there is that only six percent of that workforce is in STEM. You know, and there's 17.3 million jobs available right now, an increase in 62% over the last 10 years. And I just want to know why, Linda, why do you think that is? Why do you think we're underrepresented in, in, these, in, in these workforces? I think the encouragement is not there, unfortunately. I think um, it's incredibly, I see it now when I read in the news and you have, you know, um, you know, brave women come out and, and talk about their journey. And if there are, you know, like you mentioned, Latinas, to me, that's incredibly uplifting as a, as an adult, right? As a, as an adult being able to say, wow, if she was able to do it. So I can't imagine you being young 
and then not having that kind of representation, how else, you know, do you feel motivated to, like you say, go into STEM and, and know that there's so many different careers you can take from there. You know, when I started off, it was become a doctor, become a nurse that, you know, being the work in the medical work field, that was it. Those were like the main things. You're either going to become a doctor or become a nurse. Or if, if you ever wanted to become anyone of significant, you know, um, status, it was doctor, nurse, lawyer. It didn't end up being like that for me. And that's where I was kind of drilled early on was, you know, become a doctor, become a doctor. That when I didn't become a doctor, for my mom, that was discouraging. It was like, oh, it was a letdown, even though, you know, I may have graduated from college or I moved on and got my master's and, and whatever it may have been. But I think it's the representation. I think it's the lack of resources. I know that when I was growing up, my mom and my dad were working so many different jobs. There weren't after school programs for us. There really weren't. That's something that has recently occurred, I, I want to say, within the last 15, 20 years. But when I was growing up, I didn't have after school programs to be a part of. Um, and even if there were after school programs, they were just kind of tailored to keeping you busy much more so than for- focusing on an area of expertise or of, of a specific subject that you wanted to explore. And so I think having that um, now is incredibly important, but having that in our neighborhoods is really what should be the focus on to encourage everyone to know that it's not just about becoming a doctor or nurse and no disrespect to them. I think they do amazing, you know, things. And especially now with COVID, you know, they are our health heroes, but they're able to do their jobs. And then on the back end, like I was mentioning, you have the scientists, you have the people negotiating those contracts. You have those people telling, you know, the FDA, this is, you know, um, what we've been doing and the FDA working with, you know, the study teams closely to, to kind of assess where the patient safety should really be focused on. And all that takes, you know, knowledge about clinical trials, takes knowledge about the science behind, you know, the study that you're focusing on, um, you know, it takes the biostatisticians, so all of those that love the numbers and the math behind it, and they need to know how many patients we need to recruit on the study for this, this, this to be successful. All of that is something that was completely unknown for me growing up in the South Bronx and going to, you know, this like local school that was maybe, you know, three blocks around, you know, from the house or something like that. And it's because we didn't have the representation. We didn't have those resources, those after school programs or, or anything like that growing up. And it wasn't until I got to college, so we're talking, you know, 18, 19, 20, that I needed to fulfill, like, a requirement for one of my classes. And I was like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll do this. intern <laughs> at a, in a lab. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll intern in a lab. And that's how my career started because I was pre-med in college. And I just kept thinking, I was like, oh, God, these classes, I don't know. Like, all of my classes were science classes. It was overwhelming for me. And I kept thinking, do I even want? to apply to medical school at this point. But during this time, I started doing an internship or volunteering or, you know, shadowing some people because NYU and other people that I met through NYU opened the doors for me to shadow them to do these internships. And then I started realizing, oh, I like lab work. Oh, I like the clinical research aspect or the basic science lab research behind this and and whatever. And it was a different path to take. And Ultimately, that led to a job after college, and then that that led to another job, and you know, gotten to where I am now. But again, I didn't experience that growing yeah. up in the South. And Bronx. you feel there satisfied, no right? 
Yeah, and I mean, you're you're taking your classes, you're passing your grades. Um, and for me, my parents didn't let me come home with anything below a 90. And so the focus was just be great, be great, be great with what I'm getting, but not explore. And, you know, again, how was I supposed to know how to explore out from what was presented to me in classes, right? So um, I think it's important for people like myself, um, for everyone who came up from the hood and if they don't live in the hood anymore to go back and, and kind of see how you're able to be a part of, you know, either their development through donations or uh, participating or volunteering in any of these resources and these after school programs. Or um, recently, my boyfriend was telling me that before COVID, they had asked him to speak at a local high school about his career and um, you know, how he got to where he is now because he's a health physicist and he works for the Environmental Protection Agency. And growing up in the middle of nowhere, Texas, you know, as a Latino, how do you know that that's a job you can even get? Exactly. Right? So exactly. it's just, it's that. I think it, it really should be kind of full circle for us to contribute back to our communities and to be able to help those that are coming up. And I think, yeah, represent like uh, us being able to represent our communities and, and say, we came from here, we know what you're going through, but with dedication, you know, knowing the right people too. Yeah, you know, if you don't know what's out mean. there, how are you going to know, you know, how are you going to know that there's exactly. so many different ways to be successful, you know, especially with these yeah. jobs and the other, and the underbelly and the, you know, and the important part of society, you know, when science, math, engineering, you know, technology, like if you don't know that these these things exist, then you're just going to go with what you see all the time that you deem as success. You know, if you've been exactly. able to go to NYU, you know, you went to the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, George Washington, great programs. You even were published in a medical journal. Is that true? I read that. I was. The effect I was. of random or sequential presentations of targets during robot assisted therapy on children. And that's something that I want to talk to you about because you do you do a lot of work in this area. And that sounds absolutely amazing. Um, and it's because, you know, you've actually dealt personally with this situation and, and kids dealing with disabilities and cerebral palsy, could you really uh, describe or elaborate on what motivated you to get into that you know particular field and write about these things? So when I I worked at my first job right out of NYU, um, and I was going to school at that point for my master's in public health, I was working in the lab. And it was great. It was, you know, the basic science that we were talking about that kind of starts everything with regards to clinical research. But I knew that I wanted to start working with people because I was in the lab all day long and I wanted to venture out and, and see whether other avenues there were for research. And so clinical research was something that I started focusing on. And an opportunity came about to kind of marry what you're talking about, the, the love for research, but then also working with a very vulnerable population like pediatric um, and specifically in this case, there was uh, children with traumatic brain injuries, children with cerebral palsy um, in a hospital up in northern um, New York, so well, Westchester, let's call it what it is. Uh, and, and I loved it. It was my first experience um, going into clinical research, so working with the patients that were actually going to be a part of these clinical trials. And what we specifically did for those publications, um, for those clinical trials that ended up being public, uh, published where uh, we were trying to target 
children who had cerebral palsy, children who had traumatic brain injuries um, due to accidents or whatever you know may have occurred for them to um, be the way they were, to give them mobility again. Because a lot of our children were paralyzed from the right or the left, and they weren't able to um, do much anymore with the their um, you know with whatever limb they had paralyzed. And so we started kind of targeting um, from a neurological standpoint what we could do to retrain the brain. And one of the reasons why that was so important to me when I started doing that was my brother um, uh, has developmental disability. He's five years younger than I am. And we never really knew what happened or, you know, according to my mom, he was born healthy, uh, full-term pregnancy. So there was nothing to say that this was like an indication of what was to come. But when he started, you know, his milestones came about. So, you know, he couldn't roll over, he couldn't sit up. We started seeing that there was something, you know, quote unquote wrong, you know, with him. And um, the special ed became a part of our daily life and it still is. And um, it was just important for me to find opportunities to help that community. It was important for me to, and it might not have been a reflection of what's going to help my brother at that moment, but I just knew how difficult it was for my parents to um, find resources for my brother for speech, for physical therapy, for occupational therapy. And so being a part of that was incredibly, um, for me, gratifying on a different level because, you know, someone did that in order for my brother to, you know, be a part of this program for speech or be a program for occupational therapy or physical therapy. And, you know, it was an, it's something that I still keep doing, even though I don't uh, work in um, clinical research for neurology anymore and my focus is, you know, shifted. I still participate very much so with um, programs aimed for those with developmental disabilities. So uh, when I was in Tennessee, I was very lucky to be a part of the um, Council on Developmental Disabilities, which basically was a group of people that were parents or siblings um, with people with special needs, with any kind of disability, uh, really being proactive to move legislation uh, for the state of Tennessee um, for things that they thought were incredibly beneficial for uh, their specific community. So we had one parent who was, you know, had a, a 19 year old um, who was unable to go to the bathroom. And so she would have to change her as, you know, you would change a baby in a site and their diapers. Um, and we have changing tables for babies in bathrooms, but she was a grown 19 year old. And how are you supposed to do that on a baby changing table or even in a, a stall and so she was really pushing for adult changing tables um, so that whenever she would be able to go to a restaurant with her family she would be able to change her daughter's you know diapers because unfortunately that was something that her daughter couldn't do on her own right and so we were trying to push legislate legislation um, that was targeted to uh, these communities or, or these um, specific groups of people that were disabled and so that was incredibly gratifying to me. And unfortunately, when I moved uh, from Tennessee, I wasn't able to be a part of it. But I still participate by calling into some meetings to provide some input from a sibling perspective, which is why I was asked to come on board because of my involvement with my brother. Um, I've been very loud. I'm, I'm part of his life so much so with his, um, his plans. Every year he has to have an individualized, specialized, 
kind of, you know, program tailored to him for his focus uh, throughout the next year. So whatever focus that may be typing, um, you know, hygiene or, you know, speech. So uh, from a sibling's perspective, I've been proactive with that. There's uh, the sibling leadership network that I've been a part of for many years. Um, and I would meet with some siblings in New York and um, I carried that relationship on in Tennessee. And I'm, you know, in the middle of starting a new group with uh, in Nevada because there is no sibling leadership network chapter in Nevada for siblings that really, you know, have to take care of their siblings with special needs. My parents never told me outright, you, you have to take care of him when we die. But that's always a big concern for my parents is when we pass away, what's going to end up happening to your brother? And I mean, it's just him and I, so I knew that I was going to take care of him. But a lot of other siblings, um, are not in the same boat or are hesitant of being in that boat or they're overwhelmed with their own life that they're dealing with. And so sometimes they just kind of need that outlet where they need to kind of vent about something or they need to share resources to help with their decision making. Or maybe they have taken care, they have taken over the care of their, of their siblings. So they need some, some help with regards to that. And so that sibling leadership network um, it's incredibly important because it just is a way for everyone to kind of share what their experience is um, because, you know, maybe someone went through what you're going through right now or will go through what you're going through right now. So um, that's a very big passion of mine outside of clinical research. But it's I think my brother is really kind of, you know, whether or not I think I thought about it in the beginning has really kind of helped me develop I think in life and he's been a very big part of my life he still is he's living with me in Vegas right now so <laughs> uh, so a couple pounds later uh, <laughs> but I uh, no, yeah. <laughs> I remember that I, I remember that and I you were, you were. Well, well, I, I can't begin to tell you how much that meant to me, honestly. But we, uh, my boyfriend and I just signed up for a triathlon. So hopefully if everything goes well with, you know, with regards to social distancing and, you know, and COVID kind of um, in a way resolving, we're going to run a triathlon in Nevada in October. So let's just hope that happens. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I am happy to send you some, but of course, you know, for anyone that has, uh, you know, a sibling with special needs, they, you know, the, uh, sibling leadership network is incredibly important. There are a couple of, they're, they're on Facebook. Um, they send out listservs all the time. So I think that's incredibly important for everyone to know. I think it's also good to keep up to date with, you know, what's happening with the CDC. I, it's just, that's my kind of, um, go-to forum when it comes to updates with what's going on, not necessarily, you know, uh, a news outlet. I think that it's incredibly important for everyone to know a little bit about clinical research. And so, you know, not necessarily a handle, but, you know, Google to try to kind of figure out how everything comes to play before a vaccine time. It gets approved by the FDA. Um, and I think that's it for me. Thank you. I appreciate it, Angel. Thanks.
Okay, thanks. I hope you enjoyed my interview today with clinical research expert Linda Monteroso. And to continue following me on YouTube, just click on the notification bell. Also, like and comment. Let me know what you're thinking. You can also follow me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts at the Angel of Words Podcast. And if you're interested in seeing my shenanigans on social media, follow me at Angel of Words ENT. Thank you for tuning in, my people. Talk to you later.